You're listening to the Let's Talk Strata podcast hosted by Mark Mercier. Whether you're a tenant, lot owner, caretaker or industry professional, this podcast is for anyone connected with a body corporate or strata title. Tune in every fortnight to hear thought-provoking discussions with industry leaders and experts on topics both practical and technical that will spark your interest. A big welcome to listeners to the Let's Talk Strata podcast, a podcast dedicated to bringing you cutting-edge views from pinnacle industry experts and leaders on all things Strata in Queensland. Today, our special guest is James Nicholas. James is currently the Vice President of Strata Communities Association in Queensland. Now, just a little bit about James. James specialises in all aspects of Strata law and in his position as General Counsel is a valued member of the Maxoft team. James has a career as a solicitor and has been a previous partner at Clark Can Lawyers and also Grace Lawyers in Brisbane. James serves on the board and also the Legislation and Policy Committee for Strata Community Association in Queensland and has done so since 2013. He's passionate about advancing the strata industry and regularly presents seminars on various aspects of strata law and professional development to clients, industry groups, universities and also delivers the SCA's A100 program. Welcome, James. It's a great pleasure having you on board to uh, chat with you on the Let's Talk Strata podcast today. Thanks very much, Mark. I'm really happy to be here. Now, James, what brings you to strata law? It's one of those niche areas of law. What brings you to it? It's very funny. I um, often reflect on this with people in strata that it's one of those areas that almost everyone says they fell into, and myself included. Mm -hmm. So, uh, when I was going through university, I wanted to be a, a litigation lawyer and um, started out litigating in the, on the Gold Coast. And just by virtue of the density of population and the sheer number of strata matters that would come across my desk, you couldn't help but fall into that, um, that strata world. So, you know, most of the disputes that we sort of handled were strata disputes. And then as you got to know some of the buildings better, some of the strata managers better, you realised that it was one of those areas of the law where they wanted a complete lawyer. They didn't just want the come in and do the disputes and then go away. It then became a, well, what do we do at the front end of these matters? How do we prevent this in the future? Here's a bunch of other things. What should we do about this motion? And so I kind of grew into it. You know, it's probably a bit of a sad thing when you, and you know yourself being in the industry, when you see what's involved in the industry and how much opportunity there is here. Yeah. It is kind of sad that kids aren't sitting there at university going, I want to get into strata because that typical law firm journey that's very difficult, yeah. if those people were aware of what the opportunities were in strata, either as a strata manager, as an in-house counsel to a supplier, there's just so much there for them. And, and it's so um, involved, you know, from the development process right through to the management of people. So... Yeah, fell mm. into it, Mark. Yeah. No, that's fantastic. And look, it is a very complicated area of law, isn't it? Uh, there's lots of legislation behind it, lots of fragments from other pieces of legislation that fit in. And of course, it's about managing people too. It's about relationships and community. How do you find that juxtaposition between the black letter of law and the the fact that it's communities that you're dealing with? Yeah, it's, um, it's very strange. It's probably one of the most sort of politicised and, and contextual areas of the law that I've come across. I remember way back, you know, when I was still at law school and I was working in conveyancing, I used to have a bit of a joke 
when I'd finish up at settlement, if the purchaser was there, I'd say, oh, you know, congratulations, you've, mm. you've got a mortgage. What I then sort of used to say when I'd end up in strata, particularly in disputes, was the you thought you bought the great Australian dream. Mm-hmm. You know, you've bought into the most complex living arrangement anyone could have ever thought up. And I think the people management is by far the most interesting and it's probably by far the most neglected yeah. part. It's funny when, particularly in the law, um, I was involved in a case a, a few years back where we weren't acting for either party, but we were sought out to give an independent advice on the way a, um, a vote had gone down. So mm-hmm. it was highly complicated. You had um, company nominees that had given proxies. Every particular type of representative voting you could think of had happened, mm-hmm. and none of it was clean and clear, and there was dates that were wrong, and there were forms that were wrong, and the whole thing. And we went through and did a really highly technical analysis of it and broke it down and said, well, that happened on that date before they had the right to give and so they couldn't have given the right and all the rest of it. And it went to the commissioner's office and the commissioner went, we get what they were trying to do. (laughs) So it's also a very common sense area of the law and I think you can kind of get caught up in the technicalities and you can't do this and you can do that and particularly when you're looking at motions and you focus on the words and you go, well, hang on, what's the connotation of that? This is in many ways an over-regulated area where, you know, lay people are thrust into the sort of confines of, of a corporate governance type structure. Yeah. And it's good that you have the common sense of the commissioner's office and experienced strata managers and people that can kind of go, hang on, how important is this really? Yeah. And what's the outcome we're trying to get here? So I learned to become a lot more outcome focused. I think it needs to be that way, doesn't it? Because, um, and, and I think the commissioner takes it that way too, and, and that fits in with the just and equitable jurisdiction against this highly prescriptive um, set of legislation. That probably does draw upon one of the big challenges in the strata industry. So where do you see the big challenges uh, for strata in Queensland? Yeah, well, certainly one of the major challenges that I see on the horizon is what I sort of see as the deepening and narrowing in a way of the industry so we're starting to see real estate agents who for years were just interested in selling real estate starting to become aware of this thing called strata and what's that all about and there's probably going to be a bit of a convergence between um, property management real estate agents strata managers Mm -hmm. facilities managers and it'll be a matter of you know whether those groups start to tread on each other's toes Mm -hmm. and start to you know, cannibalise business from each other or whether what I'm hoping will happen, you'll end up with people who are strata experts and they'll be able to help infiltrate those other industries and educate so that it can sort of facilitate what will be better service for the lot owners rather than, you know, this focus on people expanding their businesses. But I I think that'll be a major challenge. One of the other challenges is always the ever-changing legislative landscape We'll talk about it a little bit later, but um, every time legislation changes in this area, it tends to create winners and losers, particularly around things like lot entitlements. And I think those tensions that then create people problems. And I think it's one of those very unique areas where when people fall into dispute, they can't just go their separate ways. Something I saw a lot in litigation was, you know, you had a winner and a loser, and then you packed them back into the (laughs) same scheme and said, well, okay, now go about it. And that will just fester away and come up somewhere else. So other challenges, I think, will be um, advancements in technology, um, changing city landscapes. It's interesting to see how something like um, the government deciding, well, you know what, we want to get behind electronic vehicles 
and we want to see an electronic vehicle charging network, you know, where are those, where's that infrastructure going to go? What does it mean for body corporate infrastructure? Um, What does it mean for lot owners that will be vying for parking spaces that have got charging stations? And these are things that I think when you're not dealing with the built environment, you can go, well, look at how fast this technology is happening. But as soon as that dovetails into the built environment and the regulatory environment, you've got to hurry up and go slow and you've got to think about everybody's rights. Oh, absolutely. And um, I guess Airbnb is a big example of, you know, big corporate environment starting to impinge upon, uh, you know, the legislative frameworks and government and the legislators trying to catch up with them. a new concept, essentially. You hit upon an important um, issue, and that's education. You're, you've been quite active in that uh, space. Where do you see the Strider industry perhaps expanding on that and assisting lot owners, occupiers, caretakers, and even managers for that matter? Yeah, well, look, I think it's the, the next logical place to go. I think we've been trying to work on ourselves for a long time as an industry, and I think that's important. But at some point, we've got to sort of sit back a bit and go what are we here for you know we're here for the lot owners and the buildings and it's one thing to work on your own professional standards it's another thing to then make sure there's the proper alignment in understanding with the lot owners and what they want as you said suppliers in the industry I think it it benefits everyone in the sector the more people understand what's going on here and then Strata managers won't have suppliers chasing them after two days going, is my quote accepted? Yeah. I was like, no, we have to have a general meeting on that. It's going to take quite some time. So, And the same with the lot owners. I mean, I see quite commonly things that from perhaps an economic standpoint, you say, well, that's in everyone's best interest. But do the lot owners fully understand that that's in their best interest? And is their economic interest the only interest that matters here? So mm-hmm. having dialogue around some of those things, and I think, Greater education enables people to then have a more meaningful dialogue rather than being the lines of, you're charging us too much and you're not seeing the value of what we're giving you. Mm. You need a bit of a, a common understanding before you can have those conversations. Yeah, and certainly they're multifaceted issues, aren't they? Because then you put into the mix caretakers that have a commercial interest, but also an interest to ensure that uh, you know they're fulfilling their contract, making people happy if they can. What do you think um, is one of the big opportunities that uh, the strata industry can move forwards with reconciling these different facets of the industry? I think it's project management and people management, something that seems to be kind of missing in the industry. When you look at what management is, and we talk about body corporate managers, and they're, apart from the, the physical assets, apart from the contractual responsibilities, the legislative requirements, all of which are sort of hygiene level things mm. that need to be done to, it's more a compliance side of things. I'd be really interested to see whether strata managers can move from that grudge purchase of, we need to have these guys for compliance reasons, mm. through to, we really want these guys because they've got a history of making buildings better than when they uh, touch them and um, they, they make the people better. So I think if strata managers or or people in the strata industry can evolve beyond the mere what they're doing and start to become leaders of the people in the buildings so that they can make better decisions about how to how to run their strata. So I think there'll be some different models that might come out in the future where you've got more sophisticated people moving into strata, you've got more people generally. I mean it's such a it's a rapidly expanding sort of area. And hopefully what you'll you'll start to see is the strata manager is project manager and then being able to work in with the committees and go, well, okay, 
what is it that you're interested in doing? We want to keep our fees down. Great. Well, then you can do a bit more of this type of work mm. and I'll do only this type of work and then start to look forward beyond mere compliance and go, what do you want to see here? Do you want the value of investment to grow? What would impact upon that? What in the in the people side could change? Because someone goes to purchase a building and does a search of the body corporate records and finds out that it's rife with dispute, that will have a damaging effect on the price of the the unit. Absolutely. And you draw upon an important aspect of the body corporate manager's role. And it seems to me that um, that role itself requires an extreme amount of skill on many different levels, the personal level, the, the legislative compliance level, and then, the, as you said, the leadership level. What can managers do to perhaps enhance those skills to better serve their clients? I think what would be the biggest thing they could do would probably be to look outside their industry. So you're right, it's a highly complex role. It's incredibly undervalued. Um, The skills required are immense and diverse. So if I was a strata manager, I would start looking at who is the pinup for this type of thing. So who is the leadership pinup? Is that Marshall Goldsmith? Well, then I'll I'll go and find out what he's all about. Mm. Who's the efficiency guru? All of the things that they need to look at And it's great that as an industry we're evolving and we're trying to have a lot of um, sort of uh, ongoing education. I'd be looking outside of that and and find some heroes and go, well, is Disney the best customer service company in the world? And if they are, how do we make our strata company the Disney of strata? And what I'm seeing is even within strata companies starting to become a bit of specialisation. They're the compliance person. This is the accounts person. So it might even be that. It might even be that on the individual level, they pick a couple of those skills and go, well, I'm going to be, say, mediation. You know, Mm -hmm. I'm going to be the person who deals with all of the internal and external disputes. I'm going to get accredited as a mediator. I'm going to understand what that's all about. Negotiation. Are there some skills that they could champion within their organisation or become the renaissance person of Strata and try and get all the skills? It's definitely an evolving industry and um, one that's trying to also blend in technology and also cope with the reforms. Now, in your experience, um, what have you seen as perhaps one of the key skills that maybe a manager might need to have um, to deal with the bulk of the issues that they might uh, deal with? I think there's probably two. There's um, on the external front, I think something like public speaking can't be ignored. There's the doing the job well and then there's the being perceived to be doing the job well. And whenever they're interacting with lot owners, they're on show. Mm. You know, they're the face of the organisation and if they stumble at a general meeting, they can know their stuff really, really well and they can have managed that scheme Mm. perfectly. But they get that shot across the bow from the bleachers Mm. and they don't handle it well and then people start thinking, oh, geez, maybe they'd don't really know what they're doing. So I think being confident in front of large groups, and there can be you know, hundreds of lot owners at general meetings. So public speaking, I think, is incredibly important um, and can take away some of that pressure that might mean that they don't perform at their best when they're on show. And then beyond that, I actually think soft skills. So given all of the tensions that we talked about before and the, the variation of the role, I think strata, you know, much like the law, probably even more so, because the law can be so specialised, there is such an immense risk for overwhelm, depression, mental health issues. So I think a bit of self-care and a bit of, you know, what do I need as a person to stay resilient and not just be an acquirer of skills and be highly efficient at what I'm doing? How can I be effective for the long term? And 
I think if I was in strata management, I'd be focusing on building a, a resilience within the team so that people can lean on each other and support each other and be strong within themselves because they do face an incredibly challenging role. Yeah, you've drawn upon some very basic things, but they're not things that a lot of managers necessarily think about. And I think that's indicative of perhaps a high turnover industry that uh, perhaps needs to look to those soft skills and those other self-improvement skills to bring out the best in what they know already as experts in their field. Of course, Queensland's one of the most regulated and prescribed jurisdictions, but there's other jurisdictions in Australia as well. What's your experience with some of the things that, say, New South Wales and Victoria are doing that perhaps Queensland could adopt? Yeah, I think um, there's a lot. And one of the upsides, I guess, if you can look at it that way, of us being a little bit slower than the other states in our regulatory reform is that we can look at what they've done and make an assessment as to whether that suits us or not. I know this will be controversial, but I think what New South Wales have done in the termination of schemes and urban renewal side of things by changing the barrier for schemes to self-determine whether it's time to renew that scheme um, and, and enter into collective sale, I think that's quite an interesting thing for us to look at, particularly as our population continues to grow and um, certainly in places like the Gold Coast where there is you know, some pressure for some urban renewal. I like some of the administrative procedures in Victoria around ballots and the interim special resolutions. And I think sometimes with the prescriptive nature of the Queensland legislation, things can get caught in a kind of logjam of apathy where if you just Mm -hmm. don't get enough people interested and involved, well, then things can grind to a halt. Mm -hmm. And the Victorian model seems to be more about, well, those who don't care or just aren't interested enough can get out of the way and they've got an opportunity to object, but otherwise the show rolls on. It'll be interesting, I'm just looking at the um, Western Australian changes at the moment, and it'll be interesting to see, even though it's not so much a, um, a regulatory thing, it's something that the SCA WA are, are looking at doing is a code of conduct and a um, best practice guide for strata management. I think that would be a really interesting thing oh, to look into. Be. So, I mean, ultimately, uh, also uh, things like the registration of managers in Victoria and then the licensing of managers in um, New South Wales, I think... Again, as we talk about what can we do on the education front, we can become as educated as we want and that will help and that will certainly give us intrinsically the things that we need. But unfortunately, it's a sort of world where we need external validation and proof as well. Mm -hmm. So I think being able to have that mark of significance to the industry to say, well, I am an accredited, licensed, registered strata manager, I think that will help in that journey from where we are now in being misunderstood and and maybe um, undervalued through to people saying, I want a good strata manager and I know what that looks like because there is this sort of seal. So I think Mm. some type of licensing and registration model would be preferable. Yeah, and I think um, the government's looked at that for many years and, uh, of course, New South Wales have, you know, their Office of Fair Trading uh, licensing regime there. I think uh, what you're saying then is that uh, if you're licensed, then there's something that is credit to the manager that perhaps is a level of standard. There's also a disciplinary process that runs parallel to that and 
probably ongoing training requirements. Um, of course, SCA provides a model for managers, doesn't it? What's the experience you've had with um, SCA's model and the training and membership model that it offers? Yeah, so SCA provides that model on a, a voluntary member you know, opt-in basis, and it's been quite largely um, accepted by the industry, which is good. It's sort of a bit of an example of self-management or self-regulation, I guess, at the moment. And because of that, I think no matter how good that ever gets, there's room... I think when things are backed by government, they just seem to have mm. a little bit more credibility, for want of a better word, or authority. And so yeah. SCA have um, continual learning obligations as part of their membership. And there is a code of conduct and there is an ethics committee and those things all operate. But I think while that's all great and, you know, I'm a massive supporter of the SCA and will work tirelessly for mm. the ends that um, we're all trying to achieve, you just can't seem to beat that stamp of approval from government. So as soon as there's some sort of departmental sort of standard, I think through to the consumers, they might see that differently than an industry body saying we're regulating ourselves mm. compared to the government is regulating us. So uh, my experience is that SCA are doing a very good job of that, Yeah. but I just don't know how you bridge that final mile of, of credibility through to the lot owners and whether those that are outside the direct industry actually know what value SCA brings mm. to their managers. So in a perfect world, how would you see that link to government actually being affected? I'm assuming there's got to be a lot of legislative machinery built into the Body Corporate and Community Management Act. And uh, how do you see that evolving ultimately if it, if it can? If it can, I think it would probably evolve similarly to the lines of, say, the, the AMA or the Queensland Law Society, which again sort of had that self-governance type mm. beginning to it and then evolves into a more governmental organisation. Mm. It's a tough one because, yeah. you know, the Commissioner's Office is already so busy um, and already has so much to do. So one thing that I've learnt recently with a, a bit more um, involvement with government over the review is kind of easy to criticise government and then when you look at how many things you would break mm. when you're trying to do what you're trying to do, you start to understand why things move kind of slowly. So mm. I would think that um, perhaps some sort of connection between SCA and the Commissioner's Office and some independent arbitrator, I guess, for want of a better word, being, you know, having some oversight yeah. might then mean that, you know, everything that we've done at SCA hasn't been for naught, but, you know, there can at least be some sort of independence perceived by consumers that mm. there's an ombudsman or there's an arbitrator or there's someone that we can say, the commissioner, someone that we say, well, you know, that's the person who governs all of that. Yeah. And of course, SCA has a good platform to springboard into that. And I'm guessing there's also other organisations that might also feed into that from an educational perspective. And then you've got the more uh, regulatory side of things, the discipline, the penalties for non-compliance and, and all of that. Look, this brings into play dispute resolution as well because it works on a number of levels. It works from a compliance level with um, with lot owners and complying with the black letter of the law but also from managers as well and managing disputes there. Um, where do you see the current dispute mechanisms being improved perhaps to enhance community living? 
Yeah, I think that's a, a really good question, and I, I think it's the community living part that we have to focus on. Having spent you know many years as a litigator, and you know you tend to get winners and losers. Mm. You tend to polarise committees, polarise schemes, affect people's relationships and with people that live in the same place that they live in. And over the years, I kind of grew to think that perhaps that's not always the best way to resolve disputes. That should be really a last resort for when there's there's no other alternative. And I'd like to look at one of the things that they've been doing pretty successfully in uh, family law, which is a collaborative approach to dispute resolution. And as I understand it, they'll have a mediator, they'll have an independent lawyer that's not acting for either party, an independent accountant that's not acting for either party. And it's a free-flowing ideas generation of what could we do? And then the lawyer and accountant talk about whether that's possible. So... I think that could be a really good model for Strata where Mm -hmm. sometimes the disputes are my motion didn't pass and now I'm going to go and wreak havoc throughout the scheme. And if instead someone was able to go, well, what are you trying to achieve? Are there any other ways? It might be a technical reason Mm -hmm. why that wasn't achieved. What other options are there? And, you know, lawyers or accountants or whoever could give the necessary advice to both parties. So there's no disparity of information there. And then they might be able to reach an agreement themselves because... I think that's self-determination versus an arbitrator making the decision and foisting that upon people. I mean, you're a mediator, my my wife's a mediator. Mm. Some of the stats on mediated agreements and how long people Mm. abide by them, even though they're not actually legally binding, you think there's some power to that. Absolutely extraordinary. And of course, the Commissioner's Office has a conciliation to its dispute resolution. And of course, those agreements aren't binding or enforceable necessarily until you go to you know adjudication but um, in terms of what you're saying then it's more of the interest-based approaches and it's a a balance in between the cost and the benefit because the moment you start bringing lawyers and accountants you bring cost but then at the same time you can curtail the escalating costs down the track can't you that's right I, I think it's putting lawyers accountants engineers any of those service providers in the most helpful place I mean, the reality is lawyers are involved anyway. They're just not involved in the conciliation. So they're like Statler and Waldorf at the Muppets, kind Mm -hmm. of up in the bleachers, (laughs) yelling to their clients what they should do. The clients are going in maybe with closed minds based on my lawyer said this is the outcome I should get, and maybe they're not getting Mm -hmm. the best outcome. And also, you know, what if you've got someone who's cashed up and has the best lawyer in town and someone who's not and... They're not getting the same information and ultimately you might win the battle of the day, but Mm. the war will wage on in the scheme that you live in. So I think if we found an appropriate place to say, well, look, you know, that's, there'd have to be um, standards set for who those people would be, what type of experience they need and all the rest of it. From what I understand in the family law area, there's agreements entered into on a confidentiality basis and those um, professionals can't act for anyone if the matter goes forward. That sort of a framework might be the... I know they've got the Dispute Resolution um, Board in Brisbane, which, you know, free uh, mediation service, I don't think it's widely used, but some sort of mechanism to give people access to justice and information that they might otherwise not have and stop the adversarial nature of, of Strata. It's highly adversarial. Yeah. I guess the Commissioner's Office has tried that... Uh aspect to some extent uh, where you've got to undertake self-resolution but the uh, when when you're talking about the family law model 
where, say, a court will say, well, you can't even bring the application unless you've had mediation and got your Section 60i certificate that enables you to move forward, the evidence, you've tried it. It's an interesting thing to look at other jurisdictions, even within Queensland, and try and absorb that into the strata jurisdiction, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, Mm. one of the, and I can probably say this fairly freely now that I'm not in private practice, but Mm. one of the shortcomings of some of the self-dispute resolution mechanisms is that they can be used as a box-ticking exercise. It can be, how do I make this look like we can't resolve it so that we get to go on to adjudication? Mm. You know, is there either a technical basis or am I doing things not because I'm trying to resolve the dispute, but more because I'm trying to fulfil the requirements of Mm. um, attempting to resolve this? And I think that's an opportunity missed. I mean, we should be leaning into the self-resolution. So obviously from a consumer's point of view or from the legal advisor's point of view, there's a lack of trust in that process Mm. that that's not going to yield your best outcome. Your best outcome is get me to be as aggressive as possible and and win the day. And I think in Strata that's maybe not the best. Yeah, absolutely. In terms of disputes themselves, one of the big dispute areas is termination of schemes. Um, We're seeing that a lot on the the Gold Coast. Uh, There's currently a resolution without dissent, which means everyone that votes needs to say, yes, we want to terminate, otherwise you've got this whole process involving the higher courts and all of that. So how do you see perhaps termination of schemes um, being managed in Queensland? Yeah, well, I think we've got the the New South Wales example to have a look at, and they've gone to that 75% termination model. From what we've looked at, there's other sort of schemes around the world. Um, Singapore's got a good one. If we can reach a legislative framework, I think that would be best. What I have seen is that the schemes themselves, a lot of this has sort of changed recently from being a matter where it was seen that there was some developer trying to come in and buy people out at less than the market value Mm. and redevelop the site for their gain. And there's probably a bit more common interest now where, where we're seeing schemes that are getting to the end of the building's effective life finding out that they need to do some significant repair work and it's then entering the conversation of what other alternatives do we have do we keep putting money into this scheme do we look at redeveloping is that even possible so i think some of the collective sale arrangements that people have been working on i mean the nobby's outlook case is a good Mm. example of how that process can derail and how one person can kind of hold it all up and the immense costs then flow from all of that. So some other more facilitative process for allowing the schemes to have greater control over their own destiny, Mm -hmm. Um, because I think in the absence of that, there'll remain that distrust because of sort of asymmetric nature of the information that those want to make gains might be able to do that without showing others what's really going on. And there can be some pretty dirty tactics around all of that as well. Um, So absolutely. Yes. And look, it might be blending in processes like maybe having a mandatory mediation when the matter, when the motion is proposed or if it fails, as it commonly does, to have uh, a process where uh, perhaps, you know, the parties need to mediate uh, and that might involve the developer, the body corporate committee representatives, lot owners and that kind of uh, blending of processes before you move to the next level. I think that's a a great idea. And and the other Mm. thing that they could look at doing to facilitate that is similar to, say, 
the extension of management rights where there is a prescribed form, mm. there is prescribed information so that consumers understand what that's about. It could be you must come with a proposal, there must be a report of an engineer, mm. you know, things that people can then say. They're not just in the abstract going, do we terminate or not? Yeah. It's this is what it's going to cost to fix, this is what the alternatives are. And then I, I totally agree, some sort mm. of facilitative mediation or something where all parties mm. can share a bit of information and everyone can go forward with just clarity. And I think clarity comes from objective data, doesn't it? Mm. Um, now, in terms of um, the termination process, it's a difficult and, and costly one, but that's not the only cost that goes with it. It's a community issue, isn't it? There's a community impact. And I don't think owners always think of buildings as having an end of life, but uh, it actually is the case, isn't it? Particularly on the Gold Coast. Yeah, well, I mean, there's over the course of my career, I had quite a few um, building defect matters, and many times you were having to deliver the terrible advice to people that their building was out of all of its warranty periods, that there was no builder or developer around to seek redress from, or even maybe a basis to do that, and um, or if there was, this is what the cost of that looked like, and there was the cost to rectify, and so became quite overwhelming for people. I think the reality is now many of the buildings, even newer buildings, can have some catastrophic defects that make them uncommercial to repair. And I don't want anyone to make the decision for the scheme, but at least if they can have all of the information to say, well, you know what, this building is important to us because Mm. commercial interests aren't the only ones that matter. There might be people there that say, we love this building and we want to keep putting money into it, but we want to do that in a way that we know will extend the life of it. They need different advice to someone that says it's all about the dollars and if it doesn't stack up, we want a way out of this. So it can't all be tarred with the same brush. And I think that the information there is the key and probably the true expression of people's interest is the key too. If if you've got an emotional reason for holding out, tell someone because otherwise people are throwing money at an emotional problem. That's not going to fix that. And so I think your suggestion before about mediation, that's exactly the type of thing that needs to happen so that people can understand, well, you know what, I just want to live here. Well, maybe the developer can swap your unit out for a new unit and everyone else can get paid out and that might make things Mm. go forward and you're still living in the place you want to live in. So it's a taboo topic and it's very emotional and people tend to get into positions. It'd be great if the process could make it safe for people to get out of their positions, explore things, but not feel like they're losing rights. And that word position is, is, is key, isn't it? Because often people do take positions rather than look at the interest-based approach, uh, which does tap into the emotional aspect of things, doesn't it? Uh, Very much. In Strata generally, I think, you know, most of the disputes are positional ones and mm. many's the time that you have to look at some of the disputes that go through and go, what point did they think it was mm. worth recent decision of, about a balcony and the Sunshine oh, Coast? Absolutely. Uh, you know, <laughs> um, and I wasn't involved in that, but you mm. think at what point is it worth spending that sort of money over that issue? Yeah, you know, it, it seems like a very positional dispute. I guess we are grateful for high court decisions when they do come, but uh, but yeah, the in- incredible cost, and not just monetary, but also on the people and the community itself. Mm. Um, in terms of some of the challenges moving forwards, and we all know legislation can be slow to uptake technology, but we've got some interesting and exciting things perhaps in the future for the use of technology in strata that's you know to do with voting which is very complex where do you see that heading yeah look i think um it is an exciting 
new era in that sense. And um, there's currently with the evolving legislation, there's high complexity in trying to marry the functionality of technology with some of the legislative requirements. And what would be interesting is if the law could evolve in such a way to make the full um, functionality of what internet voting could be easier. But in the absence of that, people like me are working away behind the scenes to, to try and ameliorate those things and to make sure that there's still legislative compliance. I think what's most exciting about that for me is, again, this um, sense of inclusiveness that perhaps the volume of paperwork, the tyranny of distance, the fact that some people might be investors, some people might not fully understand Strata and how it works, that sometimes the voting process isn't representative of everyone's actual interests. And so online voting is another way of sort of democratising the voting process to make it more accessible for people so that if you're on holidays in um, Bora Bora, Mm -hmm. (laughs) living the dream, you can, internet connection available, you can, um, you know, jump on and vote still. And it might also increase trust. I mean, one of the things that is a common theme, certainly in Queensland, is this idea of proxy farming or power of attorney farming and this distrust around who is actually making the decision. Well, if you've got the ability to vote from anywhere, then there's no need to appoint powers of attorney. Exactly. And so that will probably enable people to have more of a voice within their scheme. Mm. It'll come with complexity, of course. I mean, I, um, I do feel for strata managers once ideas of, say, full interactive voting within meetings takes place. I mean, it's hard enough, I think, for them now with, you know, voting papers in hand and votes from the floor and so many dynamic things that can change throughout the course of the meeting to then be uh, managing technology on top of that. So I think each strata manager and strata management company probably need to have a bit of a think about how far do we let this technology in? So are we just going to use it for generation of documents and retaining of records are we going to use it for voting up until a certain point are we going to allow voting within the meeting and there'll be all sort of legislative issues about you know when the meetings open and when votes can be cast and all of those Mm. sorts of things so i think before it's upon us and (laughs) we're then having a, a flurry of case law to deal with it you know as while it's you know currently evolving strata manager should probably have a bit of a think about how does this best suit the way we want to manage and And also the fact that the manager's still the manager. It's still, you know, they're meeting to run. It's the body corporate's meeting to run, but they're guiding the body corporate Mm. through that meeting and not over-relying on software to go, well, if the software let it happen, then it's got to be right. No, (laughs) the manager still exercises their discretion to advise the, the chairperson, this is how I see it, and still perform that very important manager role. Technology will never take over the manager's interpersonal role and the wealth of their experience. Yeah, and that's an important um, thing you've picked up on, interpersonal, because you can have all the AI that you want to manage the complexities of invalidity of voting and all of that, but then you still have that personal interaction and, um, you know, dealing with owners that do turn up to meetings, uh, which is a very important aspect of the manager's role. I guess it comes down to, when, when you look at the legislation itself, I think when you type the word electronic and search through, there's not a hell of a lot of uh, electronic discussion in the legislation. 
Well, that's right. I mean, it ends up being this um, argument by analogy, essentially, where you kind of go, well, the Electronic Transactions Act enables you mm-hmm. to do certain things, and then you can you can resolve to vote electronically. But as we've looked at it you know, pretty heavily, you've got to be very specific because yeah. electronic voting could simply be you take your physical voting paper, you mark it, you scan it, and you email it. That's or right. it could be there's an online voting system that people log into and they view meetings there and they vote there. So mm. given that the, the scheme's got the ability to regulate certain aspects of that itself, some particular attention should be paid to the details of that motion. So probably worth you know, having a solicitor look at it and make sure that it's right so that you don't get down the track and have someone go, well, all the meetings that we've had for however long mm. are invalid because... Well, yeah. And then you throw open the uh, potential licensing regime and qualifying a voting regime alongside that uh, just throws open a whole different level of complexity, doesn't it? That's right. For, yeah. for people that just want to live in a building and, yes. and have things work you know, fairly well and get on with their lives, you know, we're all busy. You don't want a second full-time job of uh, yeah. you know, having to manage voting. Well, that's right, and that's a good point. I mean, uh, a lot of owners just simply vote because it's part of being in the community title scheme but they just want to live there don't they yeah yeah now looking at um some of the things that uh you've done from an educational perspective you've done some lecturing at uh, you know universities and through sca what kind of uh advancements do you think are open to government and all these organizations to enhance what is effectively you know community living for everyone Well, I think what we're doing now is a really good example. Mm. Um, I think there needs to be more platforms upon which people are are spreading information. Not everyone digests information the same way and not everyone sort of becomes aware of things at the, the same time. So I think governments, SCA, yourself, we all need to start thinking about, well, would people take this in better in video format? Would they take it better as a podcast? Is there a campaign around something that we can do where there's some print material and some video material? And I am seeing, so like the Commissioner's Office um, website is getting better and better all the time. Mm. They're putting so much valuable information up there. Funnily enough, it seems to be certainly in Queensland, one of those things where you kind of go, the information's all there, but people don't know how to navigate it. It's amazing how much freely available information there is, but people just don't know where to start and don't know where to um, sort of navigate to. So... Mm. I think more interactive education would be key. I think if people could, you know, get to the point where the access to that information is sort of readily apparent, you know, via um, video and podcasts and online material, and then the face-to-face stuff would be more contextual. So it's like, take all that as a given. We've all read that stuff. Now, what happens when this happens in a scheme and and you get some you know just almost socratic style sort of conversations happening around that and people as peers kind of sharpening each other's skills in that sense rather than where we were probably the last few years of that lecture style of i'm going to come in and tell you all about these things let people learn at their own pace and then have more dynamic conversations Mm. that, that can go anywhere yeah and that's the trick isn't it to try and get industry professionals out of their shell and in these forums delivering webinars we're seeing a rise in webinars and i think to an extent it's got to do with capacity doesn't it um we've got a new generation new technological uh basis to do it 
now we just need the people to come in and uh, deliver their expertise. Yeah, well, that's right. And I think it also dovetails back into that vision that I was sort of having earlier of the strata manager as the project manager. Mm. I mean, you know, if I was a strata manager, I'd be sitting there thinking, well, I've got what I've got, but who's got something else that can benefit my schemes and how can I plug them in to what I'm doing? So rather than having to be the font of all knowledge, I'm the place that connects all the knowledge so they know that I know people that can help them with X, Y, and Z. And so Mm. I think we might see a bit more of that going forward where the strata managers don't try to be all things to all people, but they connect the right people. That'd be an interesting educational space where um, I think the strata industry generally is quite good at everyone taking off their company caps and going, well, let's get in and do what's right for the industry. So the, that's already excellent. The next evolution is sharing a few, you know, more ideas and um, and probably sharing the spotlight a bit with, yeah. with other people from outside the industry. I think you're right about the manager being almost an information facilitator and almost a broker of uh, the right personnel to feed into the right type of matter or issue at hand. So what does a strata manager of tomorrow then look like uh, as, as we move into this technological age? Yeah, I think one of a couple of things will happen. There'll either be the specialisation that I kind of talked about before, yeah. where people will be... I mean, you're already seeing it in terms of some people being small scheme specialists and some people being big buildings and some people dealing with some of the more exotic, for want of a better word, um, legislation. So um, obviously we you know, we have a bit of a, a history of different legislations yeah. and there's South Bank and, yeah. and Hope Island and others. So I think there'll be a degree of specialisation, but I think the ultimate strata manager of the future will be that facilitator. They'll be that conduit to all things and really a a project manager and a people manager, and they'll guide their buildings through um, the process and act as the the gatekeeper for those schemes to kind of help them filter out what's helpful and, Mm -hmm. and what's not helpful and I think that'll be a pretty exciting era for body corporate management that they'll then have the consultation in with developers, with architects, with the people who, um, you know, can best help the residents in their schemes. Yeah. It comes back to a more fundamental thing then, doesn't it, of the early career paths that um, people coming out of uni perhaps take. We've got the body corporate lawyers. To my knowledge, there's no such course in existence and then we've got the body corporate managers um, it could almost be a tertiary course the amount of information and knowledge that a manager needs to have and then the ongoing training and then the licensing it is quite an exciting prospect but a very difficult one to execute isn't it yeah it's it's extremely exciting and just listening to you um, say that then made me realize just how underutilised education, formal education mm. sense is in this area. I mean, it's a it's a testament to those in the industry that they are essentially self-taught, self-regulated, mm. and everyone, like myself, has kind of fallen into it, and then yeah. you've sort of had to run your own race in that sense. Um, it would be really inspiring to be able to open up the world of strata to people that are earlier in their education journey yeah. and kind of go, well... If I want to be an architect, I could work in strata and then I'd really understand how it's used and then maybe I'd be better architect and engineer and swap out lawyer or whatever you want. You know, it's there. I mean, um, as I think I've confessed to you previously, strata law was one 
aspect of the property law course and it wasn't accessible, yeah. so I skipped it. Yeah. <laughs> so, and then, you know, years later, yeah. I'm working in that area. So yeah. it would be really good for people to understand, you know, whether that's at careers fairs or whatever it happens to be, yeah. what this world is and how many things it, it touches. The more people I speak to experts in the field of strata, I hear more and more that they did fall into it uh, and we can see possibilities for specialisations in engineering as you say architecture law and even just general administration where uh, you know strata can become its own career and stand on its two feet and allow those pathways to to the younger generation now in terms of um, where you see strata moving forwards we've got quite a, a lot of reforms that have been proposed. QUT Group has put forward proposals, there's talks, there's papers being written. Where do you see this perhaps moving to and who are the players to make it happen? Yeah, so I think one of the best moves that was made with the Queensland strata reform was to give custodianship to someone. And so the fact that there has been that body of work that has been carried regardless of changes of government mm. and changes of policy and things like that. So I guess the first thing I'd say is thank God that decision was made and yeah. that, um, you know, there's been as minimal slippage, you know, as there could be. I mean, when you look at where the property reforms first sort of came on and how much was having to be or was earmarked to be overhauled, it was a mammoth task. Yeah. And I think we um, all think, oh, well, we can make these sweeping reforms. But as the lot entitlements issue kind of shows, every time it oh, rears yes. its um, ugly head, mm. you end up with you know a lot of disputation coming out of that. And um, sometimes it feels a bit like back to the future where it's like mm. this now and no, it's back to what it was before. And it's flip-flopped. And the only thing that I can say we can be sure of is every time it comes up, it creates a lot of turmoil. And that's just one issue. Mm. So um, there's a lot to it. There's been so much work done, the discussion papers and the responses that um, SCA has um, put out, and they've also they've done that sort of under their own um, banner, but they've also worked in with ARAMA and the um, Owners Corporation Network mm. to look at where are their commonalities and differences and where there are some commonalities. Can we support each other's positions in a submission there? Mm. Um, so, you know, there's... And just about everyone in the industry individual lot owners you know everyone's made submissions in relation to that it has been a bit slower moving than what we'd like i think the next thing on the agenda is the sort of more administrative uh, type uh, reforms around meeting procedures and deals and things like that um, then i understand unfortunately the lot entitlement issue will mm. sort of come up again and then uh, then they'll be dealing with some of the more uh, media things that we've looked at like um, termination of schemes whether there's any ability to to harmonize the various different pieces yeah. of legislation and um, so there's still a lot of work to be done probably as i said before one of the benefits of us turning up late to the party is we can see what all the other states are wearing yeah. and, and what Absolutely. that looks like but we might be able to just cut and paste no, <laughs> by the no. end of all this but um i, I think we'd be lucky if we got something new to consider this side of Christmas mm. um, but I, I think probably it's going to be some movement next year is just my general gut feel and then it will probably be something where everyone's heralding the reforms and we can't wait till we have these reforms and then as soon as they come there'll be you know just as much kind of uh, you know angst about what the reforms all mean but 
Yeah. It'll be and, interesting. And those reforms, a signal change and, you know, managers need to change processes and, you know, the, the, the law needs to then, adjudications need to catch up with that. You brought an interesting point about um, the various stakeholders actually coming together and having some common voice or position to move forwards to facilitate those reforms. How do you see that perhaps being enhanced perhaps in the future? You've got lots of different interest groups. Uh, you've mentioned ARAMA, the Owners Association, of course SCA. Um, you've got, uh, of course, lawyers are a stakeholder as well and they're often behind the scenes. So how do you see this integration and common voice being facilitated? Yeah, well, SCA is trying to foster it as mm. much as possible. I think a lot of the work that the recently late Gary Maynard did mm. really helped. Um, Gary really reached out to ARAMA and SCA and said, we don't need to be mm. at loggerheads here, we can, mm. we can find some common ground. And my involvement started well, about six or seven years ago when I was a partner at Grace Lawyers. And we used to go along to industry events that um, Gary and Trevor Rawnsley from ARAMA mm. were putting together. And we thought, well, this is really good. This is a coming together of two groups that have been somewhat opposed. And certainly part of where SCA wants to go in the future is the bringing people inside and and not having these, you know, even seeming exclusions and, and keeping that dialogue going. So obviously, you know, we do have... Um, a lot of suppliers, you know, I'm a supplier to the industry, yeah. you know, that get involved in SCA. You know, we want to see more lot owner involvement. So I think it's something that's that's kind of naturally evolving, and I'm quite happy to see that it's mm. naturally evolving. And I think we've just got to do more things to foster that. So maybe in these podcasts, in that offering of information to mm. the industry to make sure that there's a there are multiple voices and multiple stakeholders. Because, again, I think if you can have some of those more uncomfortable conversations when there's not something to be lost, just theoretical. You've got the strata manager and the um, facilities manager talking to the resident manager about, you know, mm. what are you doing? What are we doing? Where can we help each other? Where can we, you know, avoid hurting each other? Yeah. Um, and the lot owners as well. Then they can have a more dispassionate conversation around that and see things from each other's perspective, mm. which is really hard to do when there's a remedial action notice on the table and everyone's worrying about the value of their investment versus the legal fees that they're all going to accrue. Well, yeah, absolutely. It does, it does escalate costs. But uh, at the end of the day, um, and in my practice as well, I see quite a lot of the time uh, the interests aren't that far apart between mm. the parties. It's just uh, one party's calling it perhaps or a small issue. Sometimes it's a personal issue. Uh, that needs to be resolved. Look, uh, uh, James, it's been an absolute uh, pleasure having you uh, on this podcast and you've brought some very incisive expertise and experience to the discussion. Uh, thank you again for coming today. Oh, thanks for having me. That's it. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Let's Talk Strata podcast. For your fortnightly dose of Strata insights, stimulating discussion with leading Strata professionals, and to catch up on previous episodes, subscribe to the podcast through letstalkstrata.com.au.